Tune Review, Print Speaking to the Blind, celebrating 40 years of audio newspaper production. Welcome to this week's edition of the National Podcast, recorded at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre by our amazing volunteers. You can get in touch with us via Facebook, Twitter or Instagram using at Cune Review, that is at symbol C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W. You can also contact us directly by emailing information at cunereview.com. That is I-N-F-O-R-M-A-T-I-O-N at symbol C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W dot C-O-M. Or by calling 0141 772 That's 0141 772 this is from The National on Friday the 2nd of February 2024 from the news section. Monkey missing in the Scottish Highlands, found and captured. This article is written by Laura Pollock. A monkey which escaped from a wildlife park in the Highlands four days ago has been found and captured two miles from his enclosure. The macaque left the wildlife park near Kingusi on Sunday after finding a way out of his enclosure and drone footage captured on Tuesday showed him roaming around underneath trees and sitting in undergrowth to have a look about before loping off. The monkey was found eating from a bird feeder in a public garden two miles from the park. He was then tranquilised and checked over by staff from the Highland Wildlife Park. The monkey, which has been named Kingusi Kong, was not in a position from which keepers could retrieve him on Tuesday. The macaque was around 300 metres, roughly 980 feet, north of the entry to the park in the footage captured on Tuesday. The Japanese macaque, also known as the snow monkey, is the most northerly living non-human primate, according to the Royal Zoological Society Scotland. People in the area had been urged to bring in any food that is stored outside to encourage the monkey to return to the park when it is hungry and were advised not to approach the animal. Keith Gilchrist, Living Collections Operations Manager at Highland Wildlife Park, said We can confirm we have successfully caught the macaque that escaped from the park on Sunday named Honshu. After a call to a hotline just after 10am, our keepers and drone team made their way to a member of the public's garden, where the monkey was eating from a bird feeder and successfully used a tranquilizer dart to catch him. The monkey is on the way back to the park with our keepers, where he will be looked over by one of our vet team and reintroduced to the sub-adult males within the group. We want to thank everyone who has helped during the process and will continue to share any further updates. That article was written by Laura Pollock. This is from The National on Friday the 2nd of February 2024 from the News section. Palestinian politician praises Scotland's stance on Gaza. This article is written by James Walker. A Palestinian politician has praised Scotland for its stance on Gaza. Dr Hanan Ashrawi, 
named Scotland among countries including Belgium, Luxembourg, Ireland, Norway and Spain that refused to be swept away by anti-Palestinian racism and blind allegiance to Israel. The former official spokesperson for the Palestinian Liberation Organization, PLO, also thanked them for exercising moral judgment and not defunding the UN Relief and Works Agency for Palestine Refugees, UNRWA. It comes after the UK and many other nations halted its financing of the UNRWA in the light of allegations that 12 agency workers took part in Hamas's atrocities against Israel on October the 7th. Despite initial reports to the contrary, First Minister Hamza Yousaf said last week that Scotland has not paused or withdrawn funding the UN's relief agency in Gaza. Scotland has already paid out £750,000 to the agency last year to aid its efforts in the region. Ashrawi, in a post on Twitter, X, said, There are states that refuse to be swept away by anti-Palestinian racism and blind allegiance to Israel. Thank you, Belgium, Luxembourg, Ireland, Norway and Spain, for exercising moral judgment and not defunding UNRWA. She then added in a separate tweet, and Scotland as well, of course. UN Secretary-General Antonio Gutierrez met behind closed doors with 35 donor nations and appealed again for a restoration of funding and new donations for the embattled UN agency. The UN chief briefed the ambassadors, including from the European Union, late on Tuesday, on actions he had taken following the accusations. He has called the Israeli allegations horrific and launched an investigation. UN spokesperson Stefan Dujarek also told reporters that no other organisation than UNRWA has the infrastructure to do what they do in Gaza and the Middle East, and it's not feasible in any way, shape or form to quickly replace the UN agency. Dujarek also told reporters that every year UNRWA provides a list of its 13,000 staff in Gaza to Israel and the Palestinian Authority. As far as I'm told by UNRWA, concerns have not been raised when the list of staff have been shared, he said. That article was written by James Walker. This is from The National on Friday the 2nd of February 2024 from the Culture section. Rod Stewart visits Tesco to buy bottle of own Scottish whisky. This article is written by Adam Robertson. Singer Rod Stewart paid a visit to his local Tesco to buy a brand of his own whisky. The Maggie May singer's blended scotch called Wolfie's Whiskey hit the shelves in more than 400 Tesco stores across the UK. Stuart paid a visit to a store in Bishop Stortford to see his own brand, which cost £35 a bottle, after it was launched in July 2023 
in collaboration with Loch Lomond Distillery. The musicians surprised staff and posed for pictures on Tuesday, January the 30th, after claiming his friends kept asking him where they could buy his brand. Speaking at the supermarket, he said, It's just wonderful to see Wolfies in pride of place here at Tesco. I'm delighted to think it's even easier for people to pick up a bottle of Wolfies, and it's been lovely speaking to the team here in Bishop Storford to see what they thought of it. They certainly have a taste for the good stuff. The whisky is described as wonderfully balanced, with flavours of warming cinnamon, fresh vanilla and baked apple. Duncan Frew, co-founder in Wolfies, added, To have secured a national retail listing within the first seven months of taking Wolfies to market is a huge achievement, and one we are incredibly proud of. This marks a huge milestone for the brand and the first of many that we're hoping to achieve in 2024. That article was written by Adam Robertson. This is from The National on Friday the 2nd of February 2024 from the news section. Scottish wildcat kittens expected at Highland Wildlife Park. This article is written by Lucy Jackson. Wildcat kittens set to be released into the Highlands could be born as early as next month, those behind the conservation programme have told the National. Saving Wildcats, the Wildcat Recovery Project based primarily at RZSS Highland Wildlife Park, said the next batch of kittens are expected to be born in the next few months. This follows on from a successful breeding season last year, which saw 14 kittens, born after adult wildcats were paired in special breeding enclosures. Those behind the project told the National that plans for this year's breeding season are already underway. Several wildcats are already paired and are expected to stay in breeding enclosures until March. The kittens are anticipated to be born from March or April at the earliest, with a release date planned for the summer. After they are born, they will eventually be moved to a pre-release enclosure where they will develop the skills needed to survive in the wild, before being released into an undisclosed area in the highlands. The species is critically endangered. The European wildcat is the last wild feline living in Britain, The species is critically endangered with around 150 estimated to be in captivity across the UK. The Saving Wildcats project, expected to run until at least 2026, is led by the Royal Zoological Society of Scotland, RZSS, in collaboration with Scottish National Heritage, Forestry and Land Scotland, Cairngorms National Park Authority, Norden's Art, Sweden, and Junda de Andalusia, Spain. The project is currently overseeing 16 wildcats in pre-release enclosures, 13 of which are kittens born last year. One kitten born in 2023 passed away, with an investigation underway as to the cause of death. Both the breeding and pre-release enclosures are off-limits to the public, 
to limit the wildcat's exposure to humans. Even interaction with keepers is kept to a minimum, with more than 70 cameras installed in the enclosures to monitor their behaviour. The Saving Wildcats team has already seen encouraging behaviour from the wildcats, including signs of hunting, pouncing and stalking. Once they are released into the wild, the team will be out into the field, monitoring their well-being six days a week, where they will be able to pick up vital data from GPS collars worn by the animals. That article was written by Lucy Jackson. This is from The National on Friday the 2nd of February 2024. From the comments section. Unionist media didn't get a Nicola Sturgeon gotcha moment. This article is written by Wee Ginger Doug. Former Minister Nicola Sturgeon gave her much-anticipated evidence to the UK Covid inquiry, which the Scottish media closely watched in hopes of a gotcha moment on the basis of her measured and confident performance, but they looked to be sadly disappointed. Nevertheless, that hasn't stopped BBC Scotland from publishing an article with a lurid headline Nicola Sturgeon's reputation on the line at UK Covid inquiry. No, specific key, it really isn't. What is on the line here is the reputation of the British media in Scotland, which has treated this inquiry as an excuse to indulge in childish and overwrought point scoring against their favourite targets in the SNP and Scottish Government. In doing so, it has done a grave disservice to the victims of the pandemic and their families. Given the hysterical and over-the-top reaction of the anti-independence media, you'd think it was Sturgeon who said something as callous as let the bodies pile high, had liberally larded out PPE contracts to her mates, pushed for a herd immunity approach, while deliberately allowing mass gatherings, ignored scientific advice and introduced an expensive scheme to open up restaurants which led to a huge spike in Covid deaths, all while she was hosting drunken and raucous parties in Butte House. It's hard to escape the conclusion that, irrespective of what comes out, the anti-independence press is already preparing its stories, telling us that Sturgeon's reputation has been damaged. They've already reported that, in advance of whatever she says, and well in advance of the inquiry report and its conclusions. They've even been telling us all what questions she had to answer. Whatever she said would make no difference to their reporting. What we are currently witnessing is the desperate attempt of a Scottish media, which, in its overwhelming opposition to independence, is wildly out of kilter with the true spread of Scottish public opinion. It's trying to manufacture a moral and political equivalence between a Scottish government, whose handling of the pandemic was broadly competent, but of course not entirely perfect, with a grossly corrupt, chaotic and grossly incompetent Conservative government in Westminster. Any failure of the Scottish government will be seized on and spun into a tale of outrage which perpetuates a false they're all as bad as one another narrative. 
We have had acres of press coverage of Sturgeon's WhatsApp messages from a press and an inquiry which just shrugged its shoulders and said, Oh well, what a shame, when Johnson and Sunak blatantly lied in order to avoid handing over theirs. This narrative has been put forward in a cloud of substance-free insinuation. We are still waiting for anyone to tell us what terrible crimes the Scottish Government was supposedly covering up. It's going to be a long wait. The anti-independence media has already succeeded in its mug-slinging campaign, a campaign which was always aimed at providing cover for the appalling and utterly unacceptable misbehaviour of the current Conservative regime in Westminster. Meanwhile, in other news, another day, another Keir Starmer U-turn. Labour Shadow Chancellor Rachel Reeves has confirmed that a future Labour government will not reinstate a cap on bankers' bonuses. Just last year, Anna Sawa described the decision of Liz Truss to scrap the cap on bonuses for bankers as economically illiterate and morally bankrupt. The cap had been introduced in the wake of the 2008 financial crisis in order to limit huge annual payouts to bankers. The pursuit of such enormous bonuses had led bankers to take huge gambles with other people's money, precipitating the crash of 2008. Even after the cap was introduced, it still allowed those in the industry to receive a bonus of up to twice their annual salary. Reeves told the BBC, The cap on bankers' bonuses was brought in in the aftermath of the global financial crisis, and that was the right thing to do, to rebuild the public finances. But that has gone now and we don't have any intention of bringing that back. And, as Chancellor of the Exchequer, I would want to be a champion of a successful and thriving financial services industry in the UK. Reeves had previously been a strong critic of the Conservatives' decision to axe the cap in the midst of a cost-of-living crisis. Now she's telling us it's just fine for the wealthy to get even richer, even as Labour insists that there is no money to put into improving the public services and infrastructure, which the Tories have trashed. Has anyone seen Anas? Commenting on the latest U-turn at PMQs this week, SNP Westminster leader Stephen Flynn noted that convincing the Labour Party to agree to a bleak future for the UK is the Tories' greatest achievement. He said, when the Tories scrapped the cap on bankers' bonuses in the autumn, during a cost-of-living crisis, the Labour Party rightly opposed it. Yet here we are, just three months later, and the Labour Party supports scrapping the cap on bankers' bonuses. Shameful! SNP MSP Kenneth Gibson said, Labour coming out in support of Tory plans for unlimited bankers' bonuses will be a surprise to nobody. But yet again, it shows how little influence their Scottish branch office has. But hey, Nicola Sturgeon's WhatsApps. There's now a call for an inquiry into the Covid inquiry after it emerged that the official Twitter account of the UK Covid inquiry only follows one other account, an account called Down With The SNP.
The account bio states, Just a bloke, pro-beer and sports, anti-SNP, COVID and net-zero nonsense. Trust in God, not government. Sounds like the typical demographic for GB Biz News. A spokesperson for the inquiry claimed that the account had been followed in error. That article was written by Wee Ginger Doug. This is from The National on Monday, 5th February 2024. From the News section. Railway linking two Scottish cities closed after flooding. By James Walker. The railway linking two Scottish cities has been closed due to flooding, causing major travel disruption. It comes as a Met Office yellow warning comes into force on Sunday for heavy rainfall. The warning has been in place from 6pm on Sunday evening and will last until 9pm on Monday, February 5th. ScotRail issued an update this morning saying that the line between Inverness and Perth is closed due to flooding. A spokesperson said, We are unable to run trains here until water levels have reduced and Network Rail Scotland carry out safety checks. Customers can travel on alternative routes via Edinburgh to Aberdeen to Inverness. Network Rail, meanwhile, added, Due to flooding of the route near Kingusi, the line between Inverness and Perth is currently closed. Our teams are on site and will work to reduce water levels before carrying out necessary safety inspections. More updates to follow. That article was by James Walker. This is from The National on Monday, 5th February 2024, from the Politics section. Scottish Labour MSP sticking head in the sand over Brexit impact. By Abby Garton Crosby. A Scottish Labour MSP has been accused of sticking his head in the sand by ignoring the carnage caused by Brexit and dubbing a debate on the issue a fantasy. Neil Bibby, an MSP for the West Scotland region, said during an interview that the Scottish Government's debate on Scotland's future in the European Union was a desperate distraction. He insisted the focus should be on the NHS and cost of living crisis, but did not draw the link between Scotland and the UK leaving the European bloc. Baby lodged an amendment last week claiming that Scotland would be best served with Scottish and UK Labour administrations rather than an independent country joining the EU. His comments prompted fury from the SNP, who said the party is more interested in protecting bankers' bonuses rather than fixing the UK's disastrous economy caused by Brexit. Speaking to Talk TV, Bibby claimed the debate on the EU was a distraction. It's clear we've got a cost-of-living crisis, we've got an NHS crisis, we've got a crisis affecting the government's release of WhatsApp messages 
and there's a real need for the Scottish Government to start focusing on what matters to the people of Scotland, he said. Instead of having debates and fantasy debates about rejoining the EU and not having to join the Euro as a result of that, I really think the Scottish Government needs to focus on those priorities, make sure we've got the practical support for people. Labour set out plans for GB Energy and a new deal for working people. We can make a real difference to people rather than this deliberate distraction from the real pressing priorities the people of Scotland have. Later, Bibby said the Scottish Government shouldn't be focusing on the arguments of the past and Brexit, but on real issues. He added, Debates like we saw on Tuesday with the Brexit debate are a desperate attempt to try and distract from the very real and pressing priorities Scotland have. However, SNP MP Alan Smith blasted the Scottish Labour MSP for refusing to address the impact Brexit has had on the very issues that he raised The party's Europe and EU accession spokesperson at Westminster said Labour politicians have collectively opted to stick their heads in the sand and ignore the economic carnage unfurled by Brexit and Neil Bibby wants the rest of Scotland to follow suit. Brexit has been a disaster for Scotland and no honest politician can tell you otherwise. Scotland didn't vote for any of this But thanks to Labour and the Tories, we were dragged out of the EU against our will and have been suffering the consequences ever since. Smith pointed out that post-Brexit households are struggling with the cost of living, energy bills, rising food prices and businesses losing trade. He added, Our economy has shrunk drastically and the cost of running our NHS has increased dramatically, while public services struggle to recruit the staff they need. While it doesn't fit Labour's agenda to discuss these major issues head-on, the only serious policy to grow Scotland's economy and give households the protection they need is to rejoin the EU and the world's largest single market. While Labour prioritises protecting bankers' bonuses over supporting children in need by scrapping the two-child cap, only the SNP are focused on the priorities and values of the people of Scotland. A vote for the SNP at the upcoming election is a vote for Scotland to choose a fairer future as an independent nation inside the European Union. We know how Bibby's amendment was unsuccessful, with MSPs backing a motion that said Scotland's future is best served by being part of the EU. That article was by Abby Garton Crosby. This is from The National on Monday 5th February 2024. From the News section. Appalling decline in child health in the UK, study finds. By James Walker. Children are being betrayed as the UK fails to give them a healthy start in life, academics have said. 
Experts warned of the appalling decline of the health of children under the age of five in the UK, with soaring rates of obesity and tooth decay. A new report by the Academy for Medical Sciences claims that in recent years, progress on child health has stalled. Key concerns outlined in the report include more than a fifth of children aged five are overweight or obese. Nearly a quarter of five-year-olds in England are affected by tooth decay. Between 2014 and 2017, there was a rise in infant mortality in England, disproportionately affecting the poorest parts of the country. The UK ranks 30th out of 49 OECD countries for infant mortality. A decrease in the proportion of children having vaccinations. A rise in demand for children's mental health services. The Royal College of Paediatrics and Child Health said the document provides alarming evidence that the UK is failing too many of its children. Glasgow University's Professor Helen Minnis, co-chairwoman of the report, said child deaths are rising, infant survival lags behind comparable countries and preventable physical and mental health issues plague our youngest citizens. The science is clear. We are betraying our children. Unless the health of babies and young children is urgently prioritised, we condemn many to a life of poorer health and lost potential. The time to act is now. Co-chairman Professor Sir Andrew Pollard from the University of Oxford said there are huge challenges for the NHS today, driven by the growing pressures on health and social care from an ageing population. Even more disconcerting is the evidence cited in our Academy of Medical Sciences report of an appalling decline in the health of our children, which makes for an even more bleak outlook for their future. There is clear evidence in the report that tackling childhood health conditions, addressing inequalities and providing early years social support can change the future of health and prosperity. Commenting on the report, Dr Mike McKean, Vice President for Health Policy at the Royal College of Paediatrics and Child Health, said... This report provides alarming evidence that the UK is failing too many of its children. We are presiding over a crisis in child health that demands urgent action. As paediatricians, we witness daily the devastating consequences of these systemic failures. Without transformative intervention on child health, we condemn generations to a poorer future. Claire O'Meara from the UK Committee for UNICEF said the government needs to act on this evidence now to reverse already worrying declines in children's health outcomes. A government spokesman said we've taken significant action to improve children's health both now and in the long term. This includes dramatically reducing sugar in children's foods investing over £600 million to improve the quality of sport for children 
and encouraging healthy diets for families from lower income households through schemes like Healthy Start. We're also investing an additional £2.3 billion a year into mental health services. The number of children seen by NHS dentists rose by 14% last year and we're taking steps to reduce youth vaping and introducing the first ever smoke-free generation. Cutting waiting lists is one of the government's top five priorities. Despite ongoing pressures on the NHS, we have cut the total waiting list and the number of individual patients waiting for treatment compared to the previous month. That article was by James Walker. The National News on Wednesday the 7th of February. Bino on the hunt for funniest pupils. An article written by Gregor Young. The UK's longest-running comic has launched a search for the nation's funniest primary school class. The Beano is calling on schools and teachers across the country to enter its Britain's Funniest Class competition and to submit their best jokes and gags. The best will be put to a public vote and the winning class will be featured in a special edition of the comic. This year's competition marks the 70th anniversary of the Bash Street Kids, known for characters including Plug, Danny and Scotty. The initiative is in its sixth year and aims to encourage future comedians as well as promote confidence and well-being in the classroom. The comic publishers have partnered with place to be a children's mental health charity, to launch the competition. The winning pupils will be drawn by Beano Illustrators for inclusion in a special edition of the comic, marking the first time in the comic's history where real children will be featured in its pages. Originally called When the Bell Rings, the Bash Street Kids was inspired by a Dundee school which was next door to the offices of the comics publisher DC Thompson. Mike Sterling, director of Mischief at the Beano and creative director of Beano Studios, said... We are absolutely thrilled to launch our biggest ever Britain's Funniest Class competition, while also celebrating our very own funniest class, the Bash Street Kids. The characters of Class 2B, with all of their unique superpowers and flaws, remind adults and children alike that it's great to be different. We hope that the Bash Street Kids inspire this year's entrants to express themselves and we can't wait to see all the incredible and hilarious jokes from classrooms across the UK. The comic is also on the hunt to discover Britain's funniest teacher for the first time, celebrating educators and the crucial role they play. The competitions are being launched during Children's Mental Health Week. An article written by Gregor Young. The National Politics on Wednesday, the 7th of February. Drugs Minister quits Scottish Government, citing post-traumatic stress. An article written by Abby Garton Crosby. Scotland's Drug and Alcohol Minister Eleanor Whittam has announced she is quitting her government role due to health reasons. Ms Whittam was appointed to the key ministerial role in March 2023, after previously serving as Community Safety Minister. In a letter to First Minister Hamza Youssef, Ms Whittam said she had experienced a series of events leading to post-traumatic stress, which has impacted my well-being greatly, and is now seeking treatment. 
Ms Whittam said she will stay on as a backbench MSP representing Carrick, Cumnock and Doon Valley, with a replacement for the government role set to be announced in due course. Mr Youssef said he was greatly saddened that Ms Whittam would be leaving her role. Ms Whittam replaced Angela Constance, now Justice Secretary, in the key role set to tackle Scotland's drug deaths during Mr Youssef's first reshuffle after taking over the role of First Minister and SNP leader. Over the last year, I experienced a series of events leading to post-traumatic stress, which has impacted my well-being greatly and for which I'm receiving treatment, Ms Whittam wrote in her resignation letter. I've sought to undertake my role in your government diligently and with the passion and focus that it requires. Sadly, after much soul-searching, it's apparent to me that I must regrettably resign from my ministerial role so that I'm able to look after my well-being and ensure my constituents of Carrick, Cumnock and Doon Valley continue to be represented assiduously. Ms Whittam said it was a great honour to have served in both her previous ministerial roles and said she will continue to support the government's efforts to tackle drug deaths from the backbenches. She added, I've been privileged to meet folk up and down the country who are working collectively to address the great harm Scotland is experiencing due to alcohol and other drugs, none more so than those with lived and living experience who have sought to speak the truth to power. I'm grateful to them and to all of the family members and organisations who took time to speak with me this last year. It's imperative that we strive with all our might to continue our efforts to save and improve lives, as we've lost far too many of our folk to wholly preventable deaths, Ms Whittam added. Your government's efforts to tackle poverty and inequality also play an integral role in the national mission and the cross-government plan set out last year continues to be vital to delivery. In response, the First Minister said, I'm greatly saddened to hear that due to your personal ill health, you feel you cannot continue to give the role the focus that you would wish to. I wanted you to be aware of how greatly I valued your efforts to tackle alcohol and drug-related deaths not least the work to take forward proposals for reviewing drug laws. Similarly, I know the dedication that you brought to your previous role of Minister for Community Safety. Mr Youssef said the Scottish Government had been enriched by Ms Whittam's efforts and experience in both roles. He added, I know that the people of Carrick, Cumnock and Doon Valley have in you a dedicated and conscientious public servant, and I know that you will continue to stand up for them to the very best of your ability. During her tenure, Ms Whittam published a report calling for personal drug use to be decriminalised in Scotland or for powers to be devolved to Holyrood as part of a bid to treat the issue as a public health matter rather than a criminal one. The plans were quickly rebuffed by Prime Minister Rishi Sunak. However, moves to open Scotland's first safe drug consumption room in Glasgow were given the green light by the Lord Advocate. Despite previous clashes with the Home Office over opening such a centre, UK ministers said they would not intervene in the pilot project. We recently told how drug deaths in Scotland have risen by 13% in the first nine months of 2023 – according to the latest figures. An article written by Abby Garton-Crosby. The National News on Wednesday the 7th of February. Girl catches her rapist by recording him confessing. 
an article written by James Mulholland. A 15-year-old girl snared her ageing rapist by recording him confessing to how he subjected her to a series of sickening sexual assaults, a court has heard. The teenager, who cannot be named for legal reasons, taped 89-year-old James Graham talking about how he preyed on her when she was aged between 8 and 13. A jury sitting at the High Court in Edinburgh heard the recording and heard Mr Graham talk about how he placed sweets on his victim before performing sex acts on her. The court heard how the recording was used by police to bring the retired minor to justice. Detectives also discovered how Mr Graham repeatedly raped the girl. He also sexually assaulted the child. Mr Graham also made explicit comments intentionally for the purpose of obtaining sexual gratification or for the humiliation of his victim. The story emerged on Tuesday following a trial at the court in which Mr Graham of Wallyford denied any wrongdoing. But jurors found him guilty on four charges of rape, sexual assault and making sexual comments towards the child. Following the verdicts, Defence Solicitor Advocate Ian McSporran, KC, asked Judge Alison Sterling to continue his client's bail. It emerged at the end of his trial that Mr Graham had no previous convictions. Judge Sterling continued Mr Graham's bail and he left the dock to sit with family members who came to court to support him. The judge told Mr Graham to cooperate with a court-appointed social worker who was going to prepare a report about his background. Thanking jurors for their service, Judge Sterling told them that Mr Graham was being granted bail because of his age and personal circumstances. Speaking of Mr Graham, she said, he is inevitably going to be the subject of a custodial sentence. During proceedings, the court heard how Mr Graham started abusing the girl at a location in Wallyford in 2014 and the abuse continued for another five years. The court heard that the girl later tried to gather evidence which proved Mr Graham's guilt and made a recording of him confessing to his crimes. She asked him about what he did to her. Jurors were played the recording. The court heard that Mr Graham said he didn't want to embarrass her but then made reference to the incidents involving sweets. Police later obtained the recording and Mr Graham was arrested and brought to court. In her closing speech, Prosecutor Margaret Barron urged jurors to convict Mr Graham of the crimes on the indictment. She said, You have sufficient, reliable and credible evidence against the accused to convict him. I invite you to find the accused guilty of the charges against him. She said that the recording made by Mr Graham's victim corroborated her direct evidence. Following the verdict, Ms Barron submitted a statement from Graham's victim to Judge Sterling, which detailed the impact that the accused offending had had on her. The lawyer also confirmed that Mr Graham had no previous convictions. Mr McSporran said that his client's crimes would inevitably lead to him going to prison, but the court was obliged to call for reports, given that Mr Graham had not previously offended. Mr McSporran added, He is 89 years old notwithstanding his great age and the fact that he has reached that age without troubling the authorities, I would ask for his bail to be continued. I am relying on his age and that the time would allow him to arrange for the future care of his wife and family. I would submit that the public interest would not be harmed on this occasion and bail be granted for the preparation of reports. Mr Graham was then granted bail. Sentence was deferred for the court to obtain a report. 
Mr Graham will be sentenced at the High Court in Edinburgh on March the 6th. An article written by James Mulholland. The National News on Wednesday the 7th of February. Met Office extends yellow warning for snow and ice. An article written by Adam Robertson. The Met Office has extended a yellow warning of snow and ice across more of Scotland, as forecasters said travellers could face transport disruption. The forecaster had issued a yellow warning from 3pm on Tuesday until midday on Wednesday, covering the Highlands, Western Isles, Orkney, Shetland and parts of Argyll and Butte and central Scotland. However, on Tuesday night, the forecaster extended the warning further east and south to include Glasgow and Aberdeen. It warned that accumulations of up to three centimetres of snow are likely quite widely across the warning area, with perhaps another five to eight centimetres over the northwest highlands, while icy surfaces will be an additional hazard. There is a risk of power cuts, travel delays and a slight chance that some rural communities could become cut off, the Met Office warned. It added that the snow will ease later in the day on Thursday and may turn back to rain or drizzle, especially in the south and east of the warning area. Met Office meteorologist Liam Eslick said most disruption this week was likely to occur on Thursday. He said, with the snow, there is a chance that you could see some rail and air travel cancellations. If the snow does reach lower levels, then we could also see some local impacts with travel disruption. He added that an easterly wind meant the highest accumulations of snow were likely on the eastern upslopes running across the Pennines and the northern Welsh mountains. The forecaster added that it looked like a cold spell was on its way as an area of high pressure moves in over the UK towards next week. Mr Eslick added, It looks like we could see some cooler conditions starting to come back towards next week and it does look like it's going to stick around towards the back end of February. An article written by Adam Robertson. The National News on Wednesday the 7th of February. Money worries push nurses to the brink. An article written by Gregor Young. Scotland's nursing staff are continuing to struggle to make ends meet during the ongoing cost of living crisis. In a survey of Royal College of Nursing members in Scotland, 23% said they have gone without food or skipped meals. 21% reported having faced difficulties managing finances or missed payments, including rent or mortgage or other bill payments, credit or loan payments. And 91% reported that financial concerns are having some impact on their mental health. More than 1,000 members responded to the survey, which ran during January. More than 60% of respondents described themselves as being responsible for paying all household costs or as the main contributor. Three quarters said they were financially worse off when compared to 12 months ago. Additionally, 62% said they have thought about changing their current role due to the cost of living, and of these, 60% said they have been forced to think of leaving nursing altogether. The results come ahead of the budget debate at Holyrood this week, which comes at a crunch time for health and care services. Health boards are being asked to make hefty efficiency savings or budget cuts. 
Some of the approaches boards are looking at to deliver these savings, including recruitment freezes, are causing nursing staff serious concern. The Scottish Government is also yet to announce when it's going to implement the recommendations from last year's Agenda for Change review, which was agreed as part of the 2023-2024 pay deal. At the same time, the Ministerial Nursing and Midwifery Task Force is working on recommendations to improve retention of experienced staff and attract new people into nursing – while health boards are continuing preparations for implementation of Scotland's safe staffing legislation from April the 1st this year. Royal College of Nursing Scotland Director Colin Poolman said of the survey, These results are really concerning. I feel for all nursing staff who, at the same time as they try to hold together services under extreme pressure and provide high-quality care, they're struggling to stay afloat financially. Since the pandemic, we have seen growing numbers of staff quitting nursing. That's a trend health and social care services cannot afford to see, with nursing vacancy rates already at stubbornly high levels. While budgets are tight right now, this is not the time to be pulling resources from the nursing workforce. We believe there are solutions, but they require investment now. We're calling on the Scottish Government to act now to fund the recommendations from the Agenda for Change review quickly and in full and provide the financial resources to deliver the recommendations that emerge from the Nursing and Midwifery Task Force and to boost the financial support package for nursing students. The Scottish Government must also make sure employers have the resources they need to deliver safe staffing. An article written by Gregor Young the National News on Wednesday the 7th of February. Sit-in ends after university vows to work with students. An article written by Joe Sullivan. A 15-day occupation at a Scottish university building has come to an end. Students took over 11 university gardens on the Glasgow University campus on January the 22nd in protest over the institution's associations with and investments in companies involved with a loss of life in Gaza. After a negotiation with a member of the university's senior management team, the students yesterday reached an agreement with the institution regarding their goals. The university will establish a working group to consider the students' demands, which will feed into its decision-making bodies. University management locked the entrance to the building on Monday night in response to the protesters' plans to hold community events there. Yesterday morning, security staff entered the building, confining protesters to a room on the ground floor without access to toilets. Deputy Vice-Chancellor David Duncan entered the building in the afternoon to negotiate, with the occupation ending at half-past three in the afternoon. A spokesperson for the occupation told The National, We're happy to be more involved in the decision-making. We're disgusted that the university is continually colluding with and aiding genocide, and upset that the university didn't take action earlier. A spokesperson for Glasgow University said, the university upholds the rights of students and staff to express their political views and to exercise free speech. The sit-in has been entirely peaceful and at all times our priority has been the health and safety of everyone involved. We are pleased that the group has agreed to end the sit-in and learning and teaching can resume. 
We have committed to continue to work with the students via a working group set up to consider their demands. An article written by Joe Sullivan. The National Politics on Wednesday, the seventh of February. The UK government is steadily dismantling the welfare system. An article written by Jane MacLeod. The Scottish government's social justice secretary will highlight record spending on welfare at a Holyrood debate today. Shirley Ann Somerville will say that this is taking place as the UK government is steadily dismantling the welfare system. The Scottish budget for 2024-2025 includes £6.3 billion for benefits expenditure. During the Scottish Parliament debate this afternoon, Ms Somerville is expected to say... Social Security Scotland is a safety net which we continue to strengthen through record investment, all the while the UK government is steadily dismantling the welfare system across the UK. We are committing a record £6.3 billion for benefits expenditure through the 2024-2025 budget, which is £1.1 billion more than the UK government gives to the Scottish Government for Social Security, demonstrating our commitment to tackling poverty. This is money going directly to people who need it the most in the current cost-of-living crisis. Ms Somerville is expected to add, We have built a new system with the powers at our disposal, but our hands are tied by our restricted powers and by UK government austerity. In January, an analysis by the Independent Scottish Fiscal Commission found that social protection was the only area of Scottish government spending which has seen rapid growth over the past three years. It said this was as a result of UK-wide trends for rising spending on disability benefits, as well as Scottish Government commitments on Social Security and the linking of payment rates to inflation. The UK Government was approached for comment. An article written by Jane MacLeod. The National Politics on Wednesday the 7th of February. Scottish Tory MP stripped of ministerial powers over energy grid. An article written by Gregor Young. A Scottish Tory MP serving as a minister in Rishi Sunak's government has been stripped of responsibility over the energy grid. Andrew Bowie, who represents West Aberdeenshire and Kincardine at Westminster, served as the Minister for Nuclear and Networks after first being appointed to the Department for Energy Security and Net Zero in February 2023. In his role, the Scots Tory MP had responsibility over energy networks, including the grid. However, Mr Bowie's role was quietly changed, with responsibility over networks taken out of his hands after he engaged with campaigns against new pylons in his constituency. Politico first reported the quiet change in Mr Bowie's position, which had happened in December 2023. The UK government did not announce the change and declined to comment. Mr Bowie now serves as the Minister for Nuclear and Renewables. Mr Bowie's social media shows that he was engaging with people's concerns about pylon routes through his constituency in June 2023, while he was the UK government minister with responsibility over the issue. That same month, he urged people to engage in a consultation to engage with the process, influence the decisions and change the plans for new pylons in Aberdeenshire. 
Politico reported that concerns around a requirement in the ministerial code for government figures to avoid any conflict between constituency issues and their departmental responsibilities was said to be behind the decision to move Mr Bowie. Electricity firms looking to build new lines or pylons have faced protests across the UK, with groups such as the Strathpeffa and Contin Better Cable Route challenging power giant SSEN over the route chosen for a network of pylons that will run for about 100 miles from Spittal in Caithness to Bewley near Inverness. Scottish Renewables said it is time to be upfront and honest about the need for updated infrastructure. It said previous work by the UK National Grid estimated five times more transmission lines need to be built by 2030 than have been built in the past 30 years, at a cost of more than £50 billion. Mr Bowie was first brought into the UK government by Mr Sunak after Liz Truss's brief time in office. He served as Minister for Exports in the International Trade Department before switching to the energy role. An article written by Gregor Young. The National News on Wednesday, the 7th of February. STV issues a statement after cutting the Scottish news for King Charles. An article written by Gregor Young. STV has released a statement after it dropped its usual Scottish news output in order to show a 90-minute news special on the King's cancer diagnosis. At six o'clock on Monday evening, Buckingham Palace announced that King Charles had been diagnosed with cancer, although information about the type and location were kept private. STV did not show its usual STV News at Six programme, instead broadcasting an extended UK-wide news programme focused on the monarchy. The broadcast took up the full 90-minute slot, which would usually be divided between STV News, 30 minutes, and ITV Evening News, 60 minutes. The BBC broadcast a 35-minute edition of its News at Six, which pushed back programming by five minutes due to the extension of the usual 30-minute slot. The corporation's Scottish-focused Reporting Scotland was then given its usual 30-minute broadcast. An STV spokesman said their decision to ditch the Scottish-focused news programme entirely was made because the news of King Charles's diagnosis was deemed to be of national importance. The spokesperson said, Given the late breaking news about King Charles, it was decided by all Channel 3 licences to run the live national news feed from ITN at 6pm, ensuring viewers across the UK were kept up to date with news that was deemed to be of national importance. The rest of the STV schedule was not impacted, with the late-night regional news bulletin and current affairs programme Scotland Tonight airing in their usual slots that evening. Up-to-date Scottish news is also always available on the STV News website and social channels, including Facebook and TikTok. King Charles is understood to be undergoing treatment for cancer, with Buckingham Palace saying he looks forward to returning to full public duty as soon as possible. King Charles is due to visit Canada in May, but there is as yet no indication whether the trip will go ahead. An article written by Gregor Young. The National Politics on Wednesday the 7th of February. Tory minister called out for double standards on Scottish independence. An exclusive front-page article written by Hamish Morrison. 
The UK government has been called out for its double standards on Scottish independence after a Tory minister's revealing admission about Irish reunification. Northern Ireland Minister Steve Baker told ITV on Monday night there would be a border poll in Ireland if opinion polls showed an appetite for reunification, per the terms of the Good Friday Agreement. It comes after devolved government was restored to Stormont after nearly two years of paralysis, but the appointment of nationalist Michelle O'Neill as First Minister has sparked speculation a border poll could be on the cards soon. But he has been accused of letting the cat out of the bag by suggesting opinion polls, many of which have recently shown majority support for independence, should determine constitutional questions. Speaking to ITV's Robert Peston, Mr Baker said there is no evidence to suggest that there is a majority for a united Ireland in Northern Ireland, actually quite the reverse. So I checked the polling before I came in, and amongst those people who expressed a view, there was almost two-to-one support for the union in Northern Ireland. So at the moment, we seem to be very far from the conditions for a border poll, and there's no sign of that changing. Tommy Shepherd, the SNP's Scotland spokesperson, said the minister's admission showed the need for Scotland to have a formal mechanism to decide its membership of the union, as Northern Ireland has. A key but contentious part of the Good Friday Agreement outlines that the existence of the province is contingent on the agreement and consent of a majority of the people of Northern Ireland. There is no such mechanism for self-determination set out in the Scotland Act and the 2014 referendum was granted by Westminster by the one-off transfer of power to hold a constitutional poll from London to Edinburgh. Mr Shepherd said, if you live in Northern Ireland, there's a constitutional means called the Good Friday Agreement, by which you can reconsider that in the future. There is no such mechanism in Scotland. The government really has to say by what means it's possible for people in Scotland to choose a different constitutional future, if that's what they want to do. Stephen Bonner, the SNP MP for Coatbridge, said, This admission from Mr Baker should once again serve to inform the people of Scotland that we are not equal partners in a voluntary union. If polling will be a determining factor on a vote being held on Irish reunification, then why should the same standard not apply to Scots living in the same union? With polling on Scottish independence consistently now at 50% or above, it's clear that the government is content to maintain their stance of persistent double standards – when it comes to the Constitution. Alba's Westminster leader, Neil Hanvey, said, Steve Baker has inadvertently let the cat out of the bag on what evidence is necessary to qualify for constitutional change in the UK. Clear public support. If that's the evidence that matters, then Scotland has provided all the evidence we need. Recent polls have shown support for independence has risen since the 2014 referendum, with a number of recent surveys showing yes in the lead. But the UK government remains steadfast in its opposition to another constitutional poll. Scottish Secretary Alastair Jack was grilled during a Westminster committee meeting on when the UK government might allow a future independence referendum. Speaking in 2022, Mr Jack said there would have to be that sustained majority for there to be another referendum. He dubbed the process for deciding the duck test, adding, if it looks like a duck and it sounds like a duck and it waddles like a duck, then it probably is a duck. 
people know when they've reached that point. They knew back then, in 2014, that they'd reached it. We don't believe we've reached it now. A UK government spokesperson said people in Scotland want both their governments to be concentrating on the issues that matter most to them, like growing our economy, seeing inflation drop further and improving public services. We want to work constructively with the Scottish Government to tackle our shared challenges because that is what families and businesses in Scotland expect. This is not the time to be talking about distracting constitutional change. An exclusive front-page article written by Hamish Morrison. The National News on Thursday the 8th of February. Council to install barriers after cars keep driving down stairs. An article written by Laura Pollock. Barriers are to be installed at a set of stairs in central Edinburgh after several drivers attempted to take the route due to sat-nav errors amid a road change. Edinburgh councillor Scott Arthur called the incidents concerning and urged cars and trucks not to drive down the steps, adding that sat-nav is no substitute for common sense. The steps at the foot of Calton Hill in the capital have been closed to traffic since last year. The route was previously drivable, but pavement now divides the road from the lane and steps have been installed. However, GPS software, including Google Maps and Apple Maps, failed to acknowledge the change. This led to several vehicles pictured stuck on the steps, including a lorry. Google has since changed the bug and the City of Edinburgh Council has said a request has been made to Apple. This week, temporary barriers will be installed. Mr Arthur, who is the City of Edinburgh Council's Transport and Environment Convener, said The footpath in this area is incredibly busy, so these incidents are really concerning. While we would expect drivers to use common sense in a situation like this, we are going to install temporary barriers this week to prevent it happening again. An article written by Laura Pollock. The National Politics on Thursday the 8th of February. Rosebank firms £29 billion earnings as thousands face fuel poverty. An article written by Joe Sullivan. Rosebank owner Equinor has again posted immense profits as more than a third of Scottish households face fuel poverty. The Norwegian fossil fuel firm has been accused by climate campaigners of ripping off ordinary people after posting earnings of £29 billion. Equinor is the UK's largest gas supplier, fulfilling over a quarter of the UK's demand. It's also the majority owner of the politically sensitive Rosebank natural gas field, located 80 miles off the coast of Shetland. Green MSP Mark Ruskell told The National, Equinor is wrecking our climate, but it's not acting alone. It can only do it because of the governments that are giving it drilling licences and supporting it every step of the way. If Rosebank goes ahead, it will be a terrible act of environmental vandalism at a time of unparalleled climate chaos around the world. It is utterly reckless. Climate campaigners now warn that the firm is set to receive around £3 billion in tax breaks from the UK government while developing the natural gas fields. This means that UK taxpayers will cover more than 90% of the costs of developing the project, with the benefits passed on to the Norwegian public. 
The state-owned firm passes dividends from North Sea oil extraction to Norway's Sovereign Wealth Fund, which holds the equivalent of £200,000 for every person in Norway. Proceeds from the fund are used to fund public pensions around the country. Stop Rosebank campaigner Lauren MacDonald said, Equinor and Norway are ripping off ordinary people, millions of whom are struggling to afford to stay warm and are saddled with energy debt. It's shameful, but instead of standing up for ordinary people, this government is bending over backwards to give Equinor what it wants. There is next to no public benefit from approving Rosebank. It won't lower bills or boost UK energy security. As it's mostly oil for export, it will just make Equinor even richer. A spokesperson for Equinor told The National, Rosebank is expected to create a total gross value add of £25 billion through indirect and induced economic impacts over the field life, 77% of direct investments going to UK businesses. At its peak during the development phase in the second quarter of 2025, Rosebank is expected to create over 2,000 UK jobs, direct, indirect and induced. An article written by Joe Sullivan. The National News on Thursday the 8th of February. Five-star rating for luxury Scots Hotel. An article written by Ross Hunter. An Edinburgh hotel has received a five-star rating in a prestigious global travel guide. For the fourth year running, the Balmoral was awarded five stars in the Forbes Travel Guide, which independently determines which luxury hotels and spas around the world can truly be considered five-star. The Victorian Hotel in the heart of Edinburgh first received a five-star rating in the guide back in 2021. It continues to be the only hotel in the capital which maintains a five-star rating with Forbes. General Manager Andrew McPherson, who was appointed to the post last year, said that he was proud the hotel had once again been recognised. He said, It's a wonderful honour to be able to share that we have retained our five-star Forbes rating for the fourth year running. Forbes truly requires the very best standards for guests and we are extremely proud to be recognised with one of the most renowned hospitality awards in the world. Edinburgh's most iconic hotel is highly regarded not only for its incredible architecture, history, restaurant and bars, but also for the world-class Scottish hospitality delivered every day. The Balmoral team works hard to provide our guests with memorable experiences and we look forward to continuing to deliver world-class service for our guests. The Forbes Travel Guide has independently inspected luxury hotels since 1958 and is known as the gold standard in rating the world's finest properties. Anonymous inspectors check into the hotel for at least two nights, then test up to 900 objective standards with an emphasis on exceptional service. The Balmoral is comprised of 167 rooms and 20 suites, with a comprehensive spa, fitness centre and numerous restaurants and bars. It's been owned by Rocco Forti Hotels since 1997. An article written by Ross Hunter. The National Politics on Thursday the 8th of February. Baroness Moan assured the UK government she wouldn't benefit from PPE contract. An article written by Hamish Morrison. Michelle Moan reportedly denied she stood to gain financially from a PPE company, 
five months before £29 million of its profits were transferred into a trust for her benefit. Leaked emails between Ms Moan and the Cabinet Office revealed that a civil servant asked her to make a declaration that she had no conflict of interest in relation to the company PPE MedPro, which she had recommended to ministers in May 2020, The Guardian reports. Ms Moan stated that she had no conflicts whatsoever and that she was not entitled to any financial remuneration or financial benefit whatsoever. The former Tory peer eventually admitted to being involved with PPE MedPro, despite her past assurances that she had nothing to do with the firm. She is currently on a leave of absence from the House of Lords. According to The Guardian, a Cabinet Office civil servant wrote to Ms Moan asking her for a one-line statement to cover the lines we discussed so that we can document the declaration of no conflict. She replied... In relation to PPE MedPro Limited, I can confirm that I have no conflicts whatsoever in helping the company to achieve orders through the NHS. I am neither a shareholder of the company nor am I entitled to any financial remuneration or financial benefit whatsoever. You can put this on the record. My role is to help the NHS deliver on its PPE targets and to ultimately save lives of patients, medical workers and carers. This exchange was followed up by the civil servant asking about her husband, Doug Barrowman's involvement in the firm. Ms Moan is said to have replied half an hour later with an email stating in large text at the top, This is for the record. She wrote, To clarify the position on Doug, he has made it clear from the outset that he has put the consortium together that constitutes PPE MedPro Limited. Behind the scenes, he has significantly negotiated down the prices available to the NHS on PPE from the company. The end result is highly competitive pricing that ensures the NHS benefits from his years of experience in manufacturing, procurement and management of supply chains. Doug is a very philanthropic individual and his Barrowman Foundation supports schools building in Africa and he recently built a large centre in Manchester for the Prince's Trust. He is passionate about the NHS and, during the crisis, has wanted to help the NHS. This he has done through the procurement of a plentiful supply of cost-effective PPE. The couple have had their assets frozen under a court order obtained by the Crown Prosecution Service. Restrictions have been placed on £75 million worth of assets, including a townhouse in Belgravia, properties in Glasgow, an estate on the Isle of Man and numerous bank accounts. They are also under investigation by the National Crime Agency for potential fraud. Both deny any wrongdoing. The Department for Health and Social Care is also suing Ms Moan and Mr Barrowman, claiming much of the medical kit the NHS bought from PPE MedPro was useless. A spokesperson for the couple told The Guardian they were being scapegoated for government failures in PPE procurement during the Covid pandemic. They said the National Crime Agency investigation has been ongoing for almost three years. There were well over a thousand separate communications with government or Department of Health and Social Care and the small number of messages you quote are taken out of context. Doug and Michelle deny any wrongdoing and have not been charged with any criminal offences. An article written by Hamish Morrison. The National Politics on Thursday the 8th of February.
Sturgeon takes aim at the Prime Minister and Sir Keir Starmer after Trans Row. An article written by Adam Robertson. Nicola Sturgeon called out Rishi Sunak for his terrible comment about trans people at Prime Minister's questions, while the mother of murdered teenager Brianna Jai was sat in the public gallery. The Prime Minister was met with cries of shame and disgusting in the House of Commons yesterday afternoon when he accused Labour leader Sir Keir Starmer of changing his position on defining a woman. Following the comments, SNP Westminster leader Stephen Flynn said he was grateful to Angela Rayner and the Labour front bench for arranging a meeting with Brianna's mother Esther. Outrage former First Minister Nicola Sturgeon took aim at both Mr Sunak and Mr Starmer on X, formerly known as Twitter, following the incident. She said, This was truly terrible from Sunak, but let's not kid ourselves. Had Brianna's mum not been there today, no one, including Keir Starmer, would have batted an eyelid. It's not good enough to stand against transphobia only when the mother of a murdered trans girl might be listening. It needs to be done all of the time. Mr Flynn, meanwhile, said that Mr Sunak had once again degraded his office today and that his comments will never be forgotten. Specifically, the Labour leader attacked the Prime Minister for failing to bring down NHS waiting lists, to which Mr Sunak replied, We are bringing the waiting list down for the longest waiters and making progress, but it's a bit rich to hear about promises from someone who has broken every single promise he was elected on. I think I've counted almost 30 in the last year. Pensions, planning, peerages, public sector pay, tuition fees, childcare, second referendums, defining a woman, although in fairness that was only 99% of a U-turn. Mr Starmer replied, Of all the weeks to say that, when Brianna's mother is in this chamber, shame. Parading as a man of integrity when he's got absolutely no responsibility. The Prime Minister faced further calls to apologise for his jibe in the Commons, which was described as transphobic by SNP MP Hannah Bardell. Raising a point of order, she said, Thank you very much, Madam Deputy Speaker, for granting me the opportunity to raise concerns and say how horrified I was during Prime Minister's questions to hear the Prime Minister on his feet during LGBT History Month and on a day when Brianna Jai's mother was in Parliament to make a transphobic joke across the chamber. We come to this place as elected representatives to improve the condition of others, do we not? And at a time when the trans community is facing unprecedented attacks from people in this place, from people in the other place and from the media, it's incumbent upon us all to reflect on our language, on how we approach these issues and how we talk about the trans and non-binary community. I think and I hope she will guide me in how we can make sure that the Prime Minister apologises. Deputy Speaker Eleanor Lang said it was not the job of the Speaker or his deputies to require Mr Sunak to say anything different. She added, On behalf of the whole House, I reiterate our enormous sympathy and indeed admiration for Brianna Jai's mother on the way in which she has conducted her public profile over this last very tragic time for her and her family. And that is the reflection that his house ought to give, that when a tragedy has occurred, that we ought to show sympathy and understanding and not always make political points. Downing Street has since defended Mr Sunak and Number 10 repeatedly declined to apologise for the language. An article written by 
Adam Robertson. The National News on Thursday the 8th of February. Scottish University staff vote to take strike action. An article written by Joe Sullivan. Teaching staff at Aberdeen University are set to strike over cuts to language degrees. Members of the University and College Union, or UCU, at the institution voted to take the action with 80% on a turnout of 60% after university management announced deep cuts. The university is set to eliminate single honours languages degrees, including Gaelic, and floating proposals to merge several schools. Aberdeen branch chair Dr Rachel Shanks said... Cuts of this scale will have a serious impact on the economy locally, the student experience and both the university and the city's reputation. It's not too late for university managers to work with the UCU and others to find alternatives that don't involve such drastic cuts and job losses. Aberdeen University management's proposals to cut single honours Gaelic degrees were announced on November 30th, the same day as the Scottish Languages Bill was launched. On December the 12th, the elimination of the degrees was confirmed. UCU Aberdeen says 30 roles at the university are at risk of redundancy. Staff undertook a consultative ballot in December, which saw 81% of staff support strike action and 87% support action short of a strike. The strike ballot was opened on January the 3rd. Around 200 full-time students are enrolled in languages courses at the university, although this figure includes both single and joint honours programmes. Following the vote, Dr Shank said, UCU members at the University of Aberdeen have made it abundantly clear that senior managers need to rethink their plans to cut jobs and cut the university's offer in languages. The ballot result is a mandate for industrial action and to oppose job cuts. A University of Aberdeen spokesperson said, We are taking essential action to generate extra income and to make savings. We hope that ongoing dialogue with colleagues in modern languages and union representatives will mean that industrial action will not take place. If it does, every effort will be made to minimise the impact on students. The spokesperson also said that the university was focused on early retirement and voluntary severance and that the university always seeks to avoid compulsory redundancy. An article written by Joe Sullivan. This is from The National on Thursday, 8th February 2024. From the Culture section. Andy Murray. Scottish tennis star in hilarious reality show clip by The Duker Perhaps when Andy Murray wraps up his sensational tennis career, he'll be able to find a new lease of life in Hollywood. It looks like it would come naturally to the three-time Grand Slam champion if a new sketch with the ATP Tour is anything to go by. In the five-minute clip featuring some of the world's biggest tennis stars, including Murray and his old rival, Novak Djokovic, the premise is that the world of tennis is, in fact, fake. The clip opens with the Scot saying, I think that's what people don't realise. It's all just scripted. The players, the matches, it's all just kind of made up. It's a bit like wrestling or the reality TV shows. None of it is real. 
We get our storylines at the start of the year and we try to make everything look natural. Let's face it, people are stupid so they'll buy anything. Murray's rival and current number one Djokovic then also appears to discuss his own character and is shown practising his character, the performance and his achievements. He's then hilariously seen practising his Hulk moment from the final last year in which he ripped off his shirt after winning. A number of other world stars also feature to make out that their careers aren't real including 2020 US Open winner Dominic Thiem and youngster Roger Roon. Murray appeared once again towards the end of the clip and said, we just try to make everything look real and the viewers seem to love it. People did in fact seem to be loving the idea, if social media is anything to go by. One person commented, Andy can retire and switch to acting, he's awesome. Another said that Andy and Novak were born for this. Andy Murray is the perfect person for this. His personality is so well suited, said somebody else. A fourth person added they need an Emmy for this, while others described the clip as hilarious. That article was by The Duker. This is from The National. On Thursday, 8th February 2024, from the Culture section. Minimum Unit Pricing Scotland. What is it and what is changing? By Adam Robertson. A statement on Minimum Unit Pricing, or MUP, is due to be made in Holyrood on Thursday afternoon. Ministers are expected to confirm the MUP for alcohol will increase from 50p to 65p from early May, six years after the policy was first introduced. It's an issue which has sparked plenty of debate, with Tory MSP Sandesh Gulhain clashing with a charity boss earlier this week on the policy. Here's all you need to know. What is MUP? The Scottish Government explains that MUP sets a floor price for a unit of alcohol. Essentially, it establishes a baseline price per unit of alcohol in a drink. For example, if a 660 millilitre bottle of beer contains three units, then the lowest possible price that it could be sold for is £1.50, not including any taxes and duties. When and why was it introduced? The policy was first implemented on May 1st, 2018. On its website, the Scottish Government explains it is not a tax, but rather a targeted way to making sure alcohol is sold at a sensible price. Effectively, the idea is that the more expensive alcoholic drinks are, the less they will be consumed. When is the statement? When the law was first introduced, it included a six-year sunset clause, which means it will expire unless MSPs vote to add it permanently to the statute books by the end of April. According to the Scottish Parliament's schedule, the statement is set to be made sometime after 2pm on Thursday afternoon. 
A consultation paper published by the Scottish Government explains that the 30% increase in the price per unit strikes a reasonable balance between public health benefits against the effects of any intervention in the alcoholic drinks market and subsequent impact on consumers. Has it been effective? The policy has proved divisive. Although a report from Alcohol Focus Scotland in April 2023 suggested that there is strong evidence that MUP delivered on its intended aim of reducing overall population consumption in Scotland, with a 3% decrease in alcohol sales. Elsewhere, the Lancet Medical Journal found MUP had helped to prevent hundreds of deaths and hospital admissions, despite limited evidence that it reduced consumption among the heaviest drinkers. It estimated deaths had been reduced by around 13.4%. However, others have been more critical. David Hume, GMB Scotland organiser in the drinks industry, said of the planned increase, there is simply no case for continuing to impose a minimum unit price on alcohol, never mind increasing it. The jury is out on the policy's impact on Scotland's drinking, but alcohol-related deaths are rising and there is no evidence to suggest it is helping protect problem drinkers. The actual impact of minimum pricing is at best questionable and ministers should be asking those questions instead of doubling down by increasing it. What will the price rise mean? A pack of four 440ml cans of cider would cost at least £5.15 under the plans, while a pack of four beer cans of the same size would be at least £5.72. A bottle of vodka or gin, meanwhile, would have a minimum price of around £17.02. That article was by Adam Robertson. That concludes this week's edition of the National Podcast. Please remember to subscribe to our channels at Tune Review. Tell your friends about our service.